Hello, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about, oh, conversations with creative people and the need that creative people have to have the things they create consumed by other people. My name is Jamie, and so many horrible things have happened in the two weeks since last we spoke that I'm going to just not even talk about any of them and take you to what I hope is a pleasant conversation between me and my friend, the writer, performer, slam poet, Ansel Appleton. The one thing I will say is that regardless of whether there are close races where you live, please vote and please get at least one other person who might not have voted to vote. The numbers matter not just the victories. Trump supporters need to know what a tiny little minority of pieces of shit they are in this country and this world, and they need to know it now. My guest Ansel Appleton writes words and tells stories on stages. He did so at our uh, second anniversary show last June, uh, along with Zach Trajano, Mira Bartok, Old Pam, uh, Sarah Wisby, and Beth Lissick. It was a great night, and here's a conversation with Ansel Appleton, followed by the story he read that night. All right, Ansel, Ansel Appleton, hello. We are, we are on. We are recording. Um, Jamie Berger, hi. Welcome hi. to my home. Hi. Welcome to your home. Thank you. We are in Ansel's living room in Greenfield, Massachusetts. And Ansel was one of the, what, six guests in the first ever live-ish recording of 15 Minutes. And the reason I asked you to be in that show is because I hadn't seen you perform in a long time. And I think you're a great performer and storyteller and you have a history of of performing more in your past in bigger situations and so i think it'd be interesting to talk to you about to start with i don't know we start with whatever you want but let's talk about your your slam poet life before i ever knew you okay and then we'll talk about the piece itself that you read you didn't read you performed. <laughs> yes. It's important to note, you don't read. I mean, I do read, but not... Right. I'm sure you read. Yes. We have read books. Yes. You've passed books on to me that you read and then I then read. Uh, my slam poet life is a long time ago, first of all. It feels like a separate lifetime. Look what years. Slam specifically, I would say I was active 2001 through 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, I started off reading poetry at open mics in coffee houses, and I had a very um, performative style, I guess. And people always told me that I should go to poetry slams, that I would do well in them. Um, Because, I don't know, in the late 90s, early Mm -hmm. 2000s, like, doing well in a poetry slam Mm -hmm, was this odd thing (laughs) that you should aspire towards. Yes, it was. Um, I was in San Francisco at the time. Yes. And I know I talked briefly with um, Beth. We know some of the same people from Mm -hmm. San Francisco Mm -hmm. from the slam scene. Um, So, yeah. So when I was 18, I moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where there were two... Long-running, really well-known poetry slams. Um, there's the Cantab, which is right in Central Square. And there was the Lizard Lounge, um, which was right by my apartment. And I frequented both. Um, and how did this lead to the team and touring aspect and competing aspect of this? So a poetry slam, for anyone who doesn't know... Yes, that's good. Please. ...is... Something that I've always struggled to explain what exactly this... <laughs> this is on the record. Dumb this is your... thing is that... Well, I don't talk yeah. to any of these people anymore. <laughs> people think of slam poetry as being a genre mm-hmm. or a style of poetry. Mm-hmm. 
it's not. It is, um, it's an apparatus. It's a carnival trick, basically. It started off in Chicago in the 80s. Um, a construction worker named Mark Smith invented this idea of a spoken word competition, which the audience judges based on quality of writing and quality of performance. And you're scored zero to 10 Olympic style and people go head to head in bouts and move forward. And the end of the night, the two most popular people compete against each other. That like an eight mile. Like in <laughs> eight mile. Yes. I mean, it kind of is. Yeah. Like an eight mile, but especially in the beginning with less people in the room, than we're in the room at the end of eight mile. Yes. I could. Yes. Yes. A lot, a lot, a lot fewer people. I guess you could come. I could have just compared it to what? Isn't there a movie called Slam? Isn't there a pop movie that's like There's Eight Mile? There's a pop of- movie called Slam, which is uh, which stars Saul Williams, who is your most famous expat of the Slam scene, mm-hmm. probably, or at least was at the time. Mm-hmm. I've never watched the movie, and I don't think there's an actual poetry slam in that movie, mm-hmm. which helps to explain why people think that slam is a genre. Yeah, I but kind of interrupted in that description. So. That's fine. Um, but no, so a slam is just literally, it's a way to, it starts off as a carnival trick to get an audience involved. Slam poetry is there are rules, you have to perform your own material, you have three minutes and ten seconds, the audience judges it on a zero to ten. No costumes, no props, etc. That's pretty much all a poetry slam no is. No costumes, no props. Can you have your text? You can totally have your okay. text. I thought so. It's just been a while. The early slam poets mostly read off of a piece of paper. Okay. Um, at the end of the year, as slam propagated out of Chicago mm-hmm. and moved to Boston and moved to San Francisco and moved to New York and moved to Providence, Rhode Island... They thought, hey, wouldn't it be fun if we had a national poetry slam at the end of the year where all of our cities pick teams of their four best poets and they do like we do our local poetry slam, but in a random city, all against each other. That's how it started. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. And then it became a much larger thing. At this point in time, I think the National Poetry Slam is 90, 120. There's a lot of teams. There's a lot of cities. Mm -hmm. There's different variations of it now. There's an individual version. There's a college version. Mm -hmm. Um, I can already see your eyes glassing over. No, I think think this is really interesting. So did you end up on the Boston team or the Boston area, Cambridge team? I was on the Cantab team. Cantab, right. The the, the venue, right. I was on their team in, oh, I don't know, let's say 2002, 2003. Mm-hmm. At this point in my life also, like, because this is a podcast about fame, it's interesting what you aspire towards and what is fame to you. So there's all these different levels. And when I first started off, my goal in life was to win a single poetry slam. Mm-hmm. And that was mm-hmm. like, I would think I would have made it had I done that. Uh, which I did, and then my goal was to make a team and compete at the National Poetry Slam, which, after a few years of trying, I did. And then, shortly after that, there is a separate event called the Individual World Poetry Slam, <laughs> um, which we yeah. call IWIPS for short, because it's a lot easier to say. IWIPS is nice. Yeah, IWIPS is great. Individual World Poetry Slam mm-hmm. is right. not catchy. Um, which... Took place in Worcester that year. Um, IWIPS, the National Poetry Slam, all of these things, they move from city to city every year. The international championships took place in Worcester? Yes. Oh, well, wow. the individual world individual poetry world. slam championships. That's... And let's be very clear, and um, much like the world championship of baseball right. is comprised of a league of, I don't know, like 28 American teams and two Canadian right. teams. It's mostly like, American. It's, it's yes. all American. Okay. It's a U.S.-based art form. There are slams in Europe. There used to be a big like world poetry slam, and I want to say Rotterdam, um, the Netherlands. Is that right. a city that it exists? Is. Uh, uh, Rotterdam is, yes. Rotterdam is. But let's, get, let's go back to you going to IWIPS. Uh, so I went to IWIPS because it was in Worcester, which was a hour and a half drive from where I lived. Mm-hmm. And I went to go see Friends and to mm-hmm. watch the show. 
And while I was there, there was an event called the Last Chance Slam. Basically, iWhips is every city hosts a poetry slam. The like overall winner of that slam, they send to iWhips, and then they have a Last Chance Slam, which is like everyone who shows up who didn't get in gets to compete in that. Uh, so I competed in that because they needed people to perform, and I took. I did not win. I took third place. Nice. And I went home, and that was that. Mm -hmm. And then they called me the next morning, because this is February in Worcester, Massachusetts. So there is a blizzard happening. And the tournament organizer said, we need your contact information, because even though you didn't win, we're thinking people are going to miss their flights, and we have to fill their slots going down the line of the second place, the third place, etc., winners of this like, eight-person open mic, basically, that I participated in. So I have no business being in this tournament. I get called the morning of it to say, yeah, you're the last cutoff, you're in this. And so I kind of winged my way through it and wound up progressing through four rounds of competition to the final stage. That's amazing. Yeah. That's great. I wrote my uh, my piece for... I didn't sleep that night. I also didn't think I made finals. So I was partying at a hotel, and um, Mecca, um, a lovely woman from Charlotte, North Carolina, who I had made friends with throughout that weekend, who performs under the name, I believe, Black Butterfly now, um, saw me in the hallway, and she said... I'm so proud of you. <laughs> and I said, hey, thanks. Like, cause I'm like, cool. Yeah. Like we like did this thing together. And she's like, no, it's really awesome. Like you really did it. And I was like, yeah, I didn't really think I was gonna, um, even be here. And she said, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Do you? And I said, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. She's like, they put up the people who made final stage. You made final stage. So I went home, didn't sleep that night, wrote the piece that I performed at finals in my head. Um, did you have to have a new piece for the next day? I had to have a piece that I had not performed thus far In the into competition. the competition. <laughs> and since this wasn't something that I had prepared for, I didn't think that any of the... F so I've already done four of my best pieces. Yeah. I don't have a fifth piece like laying <laughs> around at this point yeah. in my life yeah. that is worthy of all of my peers who I am in awe of being on a stage with them mm -hmm. in front of 900 people. So I wrote something that morning and performed it and uh, did not win. Did not even, took, I think, last or second to last place mm -hmm. in the final round. But because I am now a quote-unquote National Poetry Slam finalist, mm -hmm. I can put that on my bio. Yes. People want to book me. And so I spent two, two and a half years touring the country doing small gigs and medium-sized gigs based off of that. Okay. So I never, all these years, I've never known that whole story. And in those two years, after the dream had gone from, from one thing to another, what, what, did, what did you imagine, what did you fantasize it would mean or come to? Or was it just enjoying the, the the ride? What was the next step? Yeah, what you know, it doesn't. It's not like there's a really a next step these days. I suppose they'd be trying to make you into something else that's marketable on social media and television and, and stuff. If you mm -hmm. were successful, an agent, I'm sure your slam poets now have agents looking for them, and they try to make them into sure personalities in in more uh, traditional media that isn't live performance. I mean that was true even back then. Uh -huh. There was um, there were at least two agencies, pretty much only two big ones that focused on slam poets mm -hmm. because there's all these little poetry slams in like bars and bookshops and coffee shops around the country that's like that's the circuit. And mm -hmm. I always told people it's like being a folk musician. Yeah. It's that level of, um, in small crowds, you're making like 50 to a hundred bucks a night and you're selling your merch. Then there's college gigs where mm -hmm. like, I could go to like a well-known slam in like Berkeley or, um, Urbana, which was the poetry slam in, um, New York city, mm -hmm. um, on the Bowery, the Bowery poetry slam. And, you know, there's like 200 people in these rooms and they're hot and they love poetry. They live, breathe poetry. And you're making 
100 bucks in merch sales for that. And then there's the top echelon of people who are performing out of the student activities budget at colleges. And they're like in a little conference room with like 15 co- board college kids. Mm-hmm. And they're making like 600, 1000, mm-hmm. 2000 dollars and they have like contract writers and all that. And there was Deaf Poetry Jam on HBO. It was a really big thing then. Like, that was considered making it was like, oh, like, I'm on Deaf Poetry Jam. So, like, that's a bio thing. So there was, even then, that whole apparatus and that desire to make it marketable. And how much at that point were you buying into that ambition or aspiration? Mm. I wanted to do it for a living. I talked to a mm-hmm. couple of potential agents, but I also found like the, once you got to that level, the weird um, star fuckery of it and the desire to be famous and doing it for a living got oddly gross and sort of warped the. I would think, especially since you're, you're making up, you're making your Art kind of, I feel like slam poets are often talking about their current life that they're living or, or tying past memories to the life. So, yeah, you're shaping it as you go. I think it would get very... Very much. It was the yeah. identity politics before identity politics was the buzzword that it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, so to then, like, commercialize your life in that, like, there were... I heard the grossest things in rooms by, from, like, slam poets who were, like getting up there in the scene mm-hmm. but not doing as well as they thought they should be doing mm-hmm. where like i've literally heard people say i wish i was black mm-hmm. so i could write the black poem i wish i was raped so i could write the rape survivor mm-hmm. poem because those score well um so that's horrifically repulsive i'm sure people made them up too you can't make up the black part but no, but yeah, people made up plenty of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's that. And then I'm also, we got to go back to the fact that I qualified for IWIPS by accident mm-hmm. and made my way to final stage on a rush of, like I was in a sports that, analogy, I was a team that got hot at yeah, the right time. That's the way stars are born though. <laughs> but I wasn't that good. Yeah, I, I, like I, I was good, but I wasn't yeah. great, and I was super aware of that while I was on tour. And I felt like more and more of a fraud the longer I was out there because I wasn't writing new material. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't was like twenty three. I wasn't mature enough as a human mm-hmm. being to be handling what I was doing, and I wasn't mature enough as an artist to be handling what I was doing. And I, that kind of leads me to what I was wondering next: Is that what led you to kind of to stop? Yeah. I used to, um, I mean, I used to dry heave in the bathroom right before I went on stage. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter if there's a thousand people or 10 people in the mm-hmm. room. That was my, that was my warm up exercises. Mm-hmm. I would dry heave in the bathroom, which was, you know, not super pleasant. But what was worse was when I stopped doing that. And I just realized like I'm going through the motions here on stage. Um, so that was a big part of stopping. And I've always valued my anonymity in a weird way. Like I've wanted to be famous, but also not wanted to. Um, I I hear that from a lot of people in these past couple of years. I bet. Uh, I always say to people and anyone who listens to the show, it started me saying is that I, I, I've only made art as to make me, to help me work through things in my life. And, and this, this podcast is to help me work through exactly that issue and the only thing i really learned is of course i still you don't know that you don't want something like fame until you have it mm-hmm. so you i'm never really going to, unless i had some success that i considered whatever I, I won't really know that feeling but more and more when i talk to people and the people i talk to don't know aren't you know people who'd be stopped on the street except maybe five of them but even them just now and then, you know, people will recognize David Sedaris, but he can walk around the world. But they know people who do, and they tell stories about the difficulties and that you don't get to choose when you get, the, you don't get to say, oh, I'm done being that guy now. Sure. When you become visible as Patton Oswalt, that's who you are for the rest of your life until, unless you stop working altogether for a decade. Um, so, so 
I'm much more uh, grateful not to ever have to make that decision. Right. As much as I'm sure I'd love it in a way. So without going through a total biography of, of Ansel Appleton, which I would love to do, jump forward 15 years, right? But just about to where we are today? To where we are today? Sure. 10 years? Uh, more than, I mean, 15 sounds accurate. Okay. And you, I've known you for a decade, just about, a little more, 12 years probably. And you're a person returning to school. Yes. And... I hope uh, returning to, to performing. And I asked you out of the blue, just I, I, I didn't, because I hadn't seen you in a long time and I really love what you do. Thank you. And, and you said yes. And I put you on the spot, which is one of the few things I really loved about owning a, a venue mm-hmm. was that if friends were messing around, sitting at a table saying, we should make a Fleetwood Mac cover band, I would say, okay, I got the calendar right here. Right. Pick a date. Yeah. And they made a great... Fleetwood Mac cover band called Fleetwood Whack that lasted six months probably, but had some amazing shows. A band uh, I never knew that I wanted it in my life. Exactly. And that, they, that. and that those people will always remember. And, and I will remember those shows. Point is, uh, I take a certain pride in getting people to do the things that they like to do that they aren't doing. And that makes me very happy. So I was glad to get you to do it. Um, but how long it had been a couple years? Since I was last on a stage? Yeah. I mean, it's been years and years since I did much in that world. Yeah. I guess uh, maybe um, in the time that I've known you, Mm -hmm. I want to say maybe five years ago now, I moved out to Portland, Oregon. Right. Yeah. Moved back. Which is, I don't know, like Modest Mouse is in Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. It's, there's a show about it. It is. (laughs) Really? It is Mecca for certain artistically leaning people shout out to Allison Alstrom and, and Chris out in Portland Allison and Chris um, <laughs> two of those people so, anyway so the point in case is like so I did start performing again out there because uh, that's kind of like what you go there to do mm-hmm. or what I specifically went there to do was like if I'm going to relive that part of my life I want to do it mm-hmm. in Portland um then so I did that for a couple of years and I moved back out here again and I went back into a relative artistic hibernation where I do a couple things here and there. But yeah, the show that you asked me to do was the first time I've been on a stage in a while. Mm-hmm. And what I found interesting, what I like about this is while we did a show for 50 people in a basement bar, there are so many friends of yours who are like have heard from other friends who've known you longer that mm-hmm. Ansel does this this thing, and I don't want to flatter you by saying, that, but this wicked cool thing. Mm-hmm. And now I can bug people to go and listen to you telling this one. I keep saying telling a story, but telling a poem? What, how Either you, or. Yeah, yeah. Um, talking at people? Yeah, telling, yeah, I prefer telling a story to telling a poem at this point. Yeah. Um, and I got to watch your process leading up to the show after after being in a hibernation and various stages of the very akin to my to me, my own of, of anxiety and of, of, of you know asking me what exactly I wanted. And I kept being kind of a jerk about it and saying, I don't want anything. I just want you to do whatever you want for 10 to 12 minutes or nine to 12 minutes. Uh, and you knew you knew the vague topic of fame. Mm-hmm. And right up until right before you went on stage. I, I remember the night before, the week before, and in the room, you were scribbling away yes. on little pieces of paper that you then do not use on stage, really. Correct. So how did it work? And how did, The thing that's interesting, and I think this will probably, this conversation will precede us listening to the story, is that you may like it or not, other people may like it or not, but it's, 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 it has a, a clean and polished to it as if you've rehearsed it 40 times. It, 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 it just came out of you as if it were a formed whole that you knew by heart. That's the way it seemed to, to, to me as an audience member. Mm-hmm. And so how did you make it and how did it, cause it doesn't seem like you rehearsed it much. It seems like you were figuring it out right there on the spot. Well, that's the trick and that's the magic of it. And it's 50, 50. It's some of this and it's some of that. It is. Yes. Especially that piece, um, you would ask me to do it for an important anniversary of your show. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to make a specifically bespoke crafted piece for that. 
um, on a topic that I wouldn't have necessarily written about to begin with, fame. Yeah. Um, which then led me to performing a piece that I've wanted to write for a long time and for uh. many years. Um, part of the trick and the magic is especially... I'm a strong performer compared to your 10 friends who have never done any public speaking. Right. But in the broader realm of where I came from in the poetry slam movement, performance is not my strong suit. So part of the hook is, first off, you don't know when the my introduction begins and when the actual written piece begins. Um, I've, I've always loved that about your, your work earlier when I'd seen you do stuff, yeah. One of the first things that I learned that I could use to my favor is that the walk to the microphone is the beginning of your piece, especially in a crowd full of strangers. Your presentation in the room before you go up to the microphone, that's all part of the performance. That's part of the show. And so am I making it up as I go <laughs> along? Wait a minute. Yes, but, but not as much as it looks like. Fair enough. But you weren't feigning sitting in the corner take, writing notes. I was not feigning sitting in the corner writing notes, no. <laughs> that would really break my heart. Wow, I'm such a sucker. I, I was writing... For something like that, too, Like I like to write more than what I need mm-hmm. and see what the actual feel of the room in that exact moment, where does that take you? There are, you took a picture of this earlier of my first draft of this, which is mm-hmm. like a handful of names in one sentence. Mm-hmm. I didn't use one of those names mm-hmm. and I did not talk about the scene in a very specific um, French bistro in Harvard Square that no longer exists mm-hmm. um, that that sentence refers to. Mm-hmm. But those were in my head while I was on stage and they were available to go into. I just didn't think that they were needed at that point in time mm-hmm. you write more than you need and then you find the story because that's why i don't call it poetry per se because i haven't written a perfect word for word script of it right and and certainly not with line breaks and right thinking about you live it it's yeah. it's also why i don't like doing it in front of people that i know because oh, you told me that at one point yeah because that makes the character harder to get into. Uh, the person who's on stage is someone who is narrating stories from the perspective of a fictional character who is pretending to be me. Yes. Most of it is very personal and is very true, but the person on stage narrating it is not me. Mm-hmm. Gives you a little performing distance. Yes. What I think also that was interesting to me, seeing you step up and and do things that, so that there's a there's a really a great deal of you know when I made I made two full length performance pieces mm-hmm. that was the, you know my biggest besides being in ensembles or groups of things, and I never had a script for them, but by the end of a run of a few weeks of doing them on weekends or you know, they'd be pretty much verbatim with room to mess around on any given night. Mm-hmm. And one of them had a, had a, uh, uh, something that made it different every night that I would bring people up from the audience to tell a story, uh, random people. So that would change it. But I just, I guess what, what's interesting to me and impressive to me is that you have this under the, the pressure and the glare of the, of the bright lights, you stepped up after a while of not performing and did it really, uh, so cleanly. Um, but what I wanted, uh, what I was saying in a recent episode was that more and more, I realized this isn't so much a podcast about fame, although it's a, it's a much easier thing to say than it's a podcast about creativity and the need to be seen or read or listened to mm-hmm. that people create things very often need an audience or else they don't see the point. Some people just sit and write journals for themselves, but I'm interested in the people who feel that need. Sure. And, and I'm just wondering how that relates to you and what it, what it means to do it in front of an audience, as opposed to writing things for people to read. I don't know if, how much you've done that. Or... <clears throat> um, I've done both, but prefer the live performances of things. Me too. Um, especially because 
And this was more true before, you know, we all had cell phones with fancy cameras on them and mm-hmm. privacy laws seem to have like gone out the window. But <laughs> it used to be like if you sat like my most formative experiences, what I remember best and what formed me as an artist were pieces I heard by performers that you've never heard of. And you've had to be in that room, in that place, on purpose to hear that and to witness that. And you might never be able to track it down again. So you had to remember that. Um, And that's a really hard thing to find these days. I don't even go to live shows anymore that often because I can just watch the live show on YouTube. We all do that now. Um, But it used to be you had to go to the thing to be surprised and to see something that you would never be able to see otherwise. So that's why I like to do it live. That's why I don't like to advertise Mm -hmm. my stuff very well when I do decide to do it. Because you want to do it for strangers. Yes. What you'd like is someone to bring you a a nice full house of strangers. I would love for someone to bring me a nice full house of strangers every night, and I want to surprise them. I want to have the opportunity to surprise them. Okay. This is an interesting point. How would you feel, though, if, say, someone promoted a big show, Mm -hmm. and they didn't ask you to promote it at all, and it was far enough away, but... They happen to be a friend of mine, and I gathered 30 of your friends, and, and in the dark, we snuck in as you were about to perform. And then after, how would you feel that those friends had seen it without it affecting your performance, that they were there? Would you, do you ever... I mean, I feel like you didn't seem to... There's this thing that people have heard that you do that they didn't get to see you do. If I were in your position, I'd be like, I really want you guys to come see this because I don't know when I'm going to do it again. Yeah. And you've said that's just not who you like to perform to. But what if you didn't know they were out there? Would you... Do you ever wish they could somehow see what you do or have seen what you've done or, or is it really not something? It's just two separate worlds. There's the world of your friends in your community. And then there's the world of an audience. I would love, yeah, no, I do actually. And some people showed up to that gig as small as it was that uh, yeah. my partner, Rachel invited, which I didn't know they were showing up until they did. Um, yeah, it does mean something to me for people who I know in the real world to see this thing that was a huge part of my life and to an extent still is and has like shaped many decisions I've made since then, even if it's not obvious how it shaped them. Yeah, I would love for them to see that. And especially if I don't know that they're there. because yeah, it's I like, created a perfect little hypothetical for you there. <laughs> it's a th- yeah, no, like that's exactly how I want that to happen because it's like this crazy thing which I can't explain to you what it is. But if I really like you, yeah, I would love for you to know that side of me. And then um, talk to me about it as little as possible. <laughs> yes, I've been putting you on the spot by complimenting you a lot through this, and I apologize, but I'm sure you'll recover. Um, I love that that idea that that you like it being. You see if let's see if I quite get it. I was enjoying it, but that that you like having it be strangers because they don't they aren't there to to see judge this weird fictive version of you. They're just seeing someone on stage, and it's not Ansel being Ansel plus. Uh, they're just seeing a person they don't know, a blank screen, telling a story. Mm-hmm. And if your friends were there, you you maybe would be thinking more about whether you're being yourself or being this fictive you. Sure. Um, Hardy White, who I probably bugged you to listen to on w, uh, WFMU. He, mm-hmm. he was a recent, he's been on the show three times. He's the only person I think I've actually become friends with who I didn't know before I started doing this just by talking to him once a year. Uh, but he comes on my, he has a radio talk show where he is an amplified version of himself that's more like a preacher. Mm-hmm. And his name isn't actually Hardy White. Sorry, Hardy. I know you don't really listen to this show, even though you like it, so you won't know that. But anybody could look it up and know that... And man, if someone's calling himself Hardy White, it's probably not his real name. But in our in our conversations and, and whatever friendship it is, that's still his name to me. Uh, uh-huh. I'm not his friend in his equivalent of Greenfield, Massachusetts, which is okay. Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky. Um, but in the first time I had him on, I asked him about it because talking to him in a conversation there, he's toned down. And I asked him about what, I can't remember what aspect of the show it was, uh, 
that made him be more performative and and fictive self. And he said, well, if you're having guests over, you put out the good China. And I thought, oh, okay. That makes sense. Oh, that's kind of the difference between performing and having a conversation. Perform having a conversation on stage right. and having a conversation not on for other people. You try to talk about it, more interesting things without worrying about, you know, anyway. Sure, and like you're getting a different version of me here in this conversation mm -hmm. than you get from my live set. Yeah. And but a different we're, but one... we're friends who hang out yeah. at bars together. For those who don't know right. me or Jamie, right. we live in the same time. We've known each other for years. And this is not... This it comes across more as two people hanging out at a bar, but it's also not. I'm very aware that we're doing an interview. Right. And I'm more aware than I normally am interviewing people, because normally when I'm interviewing people, they aren't people who I spend as much time just saying hi and sitting at a bar for 15 minutes with, or an hour or whatever. So this this there's this artificiality that we've created here today that's interesting. Um, I also think it's funny. What did you say? Who would call themselves Hardy White? Is Hardy name? White, yeah. I mean, who would call themselves Ansel Appleton? Yes. Is that my real name? Is that not my real name? It's, ah. I mean, yes and no. I, actually, I know that that's yes and no, because I know someone who sees your your credit card when you settle up at the bar. Yes. <laughs> Appleton is, is definitely your name. And Ansel is part of my yes, legal it name, is, yeah. but it's not my legal first name. Yeah. It's my legal middle name. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the decision to go by that has some family history, has some accidental history, but also marked a sea change where I started to live as a performing artist in a way. Mm -hmm. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, actually, before we wrap up, there's one, there's a question I always, I sometimes resist asking, but I always want to. In terms of, of your favorite performers or writers and or moments performing? Were there any any people you wish you could have ever performed in front of that you didn't? Any you did and got feedback from? Any experiences where you performed for someone where it was like, I'm, you know, that it meant a, a lot that they saw it? So, the, so, okay, so there's the old adage that you learn to play guitar because you want to get laid. Mm. So, sure, like in my early years... Was it, and for a lot of people who, um, for a lot of specifically men um, who are involved in um, a lot of types of performance, but especially um, the poetry world, um, I think that it starts off as, it's almost a mating call in a way. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's, um, yeah, you got a bunch of like weirdos who like, weren't necessarily popular in high school or weren't comfortable around people. And then they find out that they have this like skill to transfix a room and that is power and that is sexy and that is the best version of themselves. So it definitely becomes about like, this is like your like idea of an ideal first date is you impress the woman who like you can't impress otherwise with your art which is super tied into it is super gross. Um, it is hopefully something that you grow out of, but I think it's disingenuous to say that that's not there for a lot mm -hmm. of people. Mm -hmm. So I guess that would be the first thing I think of when I was honing my voice. I used to go to this little poetry open mic at a coffee shop called fire and water in Northampton. And, um, and I met a woman there who I will refer to as Christina. Um, and if she ever listens to this, she'll know exactly who she is. And I wrote a poem that was blatantly for her and to impress her. And she responded in kind the next week. And we did this back and forth. And it was... Uh, did you give that, send that to her or did you do it on stage and she saw it? Did it on stage in front of her. Which is a thing. Um, I became... She became a muse of mine without really ever asking for that. Uh -huh. um, and we definitely did have an artistic relationship where we did play back and forth with it. But at the same time, it was more on my end than hers and dehumanizing in a weird way. Because like I'm now writing towards this like fictitious creation that I have of this person. This is a slight tangent, but... No, I love it. 
there was uh there was one piece that like included the line i invented you which i did because like the woman who i'm talking to who's in the same room as me through a microphone is not the actual woman who's like spent the last 19 years of her life in her skin she Mm -hmm. is a a fictitious version of that just as like the person that i am on stage is a fictitious version of the person that i have been in my skin for x number of years um so for people who you want to impress sure it starts off with that i don't there are a ton of people who i look up to in the scene um i could bore you with a list of names but I'm sure there were points in my life when I wanted to impress them, but by and large, no. Like, I don't particularly care who's there and, like, the famous, like, came before me, mm-hmm. inspired me. And like you world. said, you'd rather not know who's there at all. Well, I don't know who's there at all. And if it's someone who I look up to, then they're we're getting back to, like, the whole, like, carnival barker part of, like, Poetry Slam. Like, I already know they're in on the gig. Mm-hmm. They know the jakes. So, like, no, I'm trying to... I'm not trying to impress him in the same mm-hmm. way. Well, thanks. And I hope we do start to, we keep talking about starting to get something together and do more. And I hope we do. And I won't tell any of your friends. That sounds perfect. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Edsel. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, Ansel just pointed out to me that the one thing I didn't talk to him about was the actual piece that he performed that you're about to hear after this. So what would you like to tell us about that i mean first of all i think we should play this part after the piece because i don't want to you know spoiler alerts great great hi this is the best i can remember this the girl has a tattoo of an airplane at the sharpest point of her hip you know she's not going to stick around this story for very long. We met at a party. I was being charming, as usual. (laughs) This is in college. She has impossibly blonde hair and very dark eye makeup underneath her eyes. She looks like a sultry raccoon. I want you to picture what a sultry raccoon looks like. It's probably a horrifying image and completely inaccurate. When we come face to face, I immediately drop my full beer on the ground. It goes off like a grenade. And because I think I'm a cheeky devil back then, I smile at her and say, I did that for you. And she raises her eyebrow and says she's impressed. Proceeds to drop her drink right next to mine and tells me that I may walk her home, much to the delight of whoever owns this house. And I think this is the beginning of some wonderful story, and she will be lighting up my coming months with her bangles and her French cinema quoting and her quirky love of clawfoot bathtubs and boxed wine, but... (laughs) I have it on good authority that she wrote fondly of me in her journal the next day, but never returned any of my phone calls. Within two weeks, I am told that she was dating a mysterious man named Merlin. He was tall, dark, intense eyebrows, always kept a 25-pound bag of potatoes on his front porch. This is what I know about fame. The end of the eighth grade... My classmates and I went on a camping trip. I left to go hiking the trails out past the sawmill and the fire tower. Lost track of the time and came back after dark. My father, not impressed. Me, not thrilled to have my father as a chaperone. The most popular kid in my class sat down next to me at the end of the night and said, I'm jealous of you. You can disappear for hours and no one notices. (laughs) When I was 16, intent to make sure everyone noticed, I dropped out of high school and formed a rock band, The Apple Tones. (laughs) We played The Old Store, which was the coolest music venue in Palmer, Massachusetts. (laughs) 
It took months of harassing the owner to get a gig. The day of the show, my drummer had a fight with his girlfriend and informed me that he could not make it. The bassist thought it would sound silly if he played too, so I just played a solo set. My father stayed outside. The only write-up of the show was, how about that apple tone? When I was 18, I moved to Cambridge and worked in an ice cream shop in Harvard Square that Natalie Portman was known to frequent. Here are some fun facts about Natalie Portman. Her favorite flavor of ice cream is kulfi, which is named after an Indian dessert. When her boyfriend broke up with her, she dyed her hair hot pink, bought him expensive gifts for months, trying to win him back. Her favorite Portishead album is Dummy. She was not known to be a generous tipper. <laughs> In the basement, Amanda kept her wedding dress. I had taken her job, and she had moved on to work as a living statue. She would stand on a box painted bright silver, wearing her wedding dress completely motionless until you dropped a dollar in her cup, and she would lean down and hand you a flower. Countless families brought their children up to her, took pictures of them together. She must appear in a thousand family vacation photo albums. When her local band became more famous, Neil Gaiman directed her music videos. In the corner, twirling, was the girl with the airplane tattoo. The last time I saw her was in a nightclub. She was swinging, swaying by herself. She asked me if I'd ever been to California. I said, no, have you? And she shook her head and started crying. I drove her home, dropped her off at the curb. We were all holding on to our drinks these days. We were older. The last I ever heard of her, after she passed, my friend wrote this. She'd make up songs about her latest obsessions. We used our cell phones to inform each other of important people sightings. Jenny O, Benicio, Fedora Boy, Megan, who dressed like Frida Kahlo. We hoarded memorabilia of them, a postcard here, a photo there. She created minor celebrities for us in a mundane town. Thank you. Um, but no, so there's a list of four names here. And Jamie was talking about publishing a photo of uh, this very short written on a restaurant guest check um, rough outline that I did as the first draft of this piece, which is four names and one sentence. And I told him that I would want to potentially redact one of the names. Mm -hmm. Um before he posted it because something that I tried to do in that piece, which I'm still working on and I made a couple mistakes in it is there are two different types of people who I talk about. There are people who are famous and in the public eye. Um, and those are the people who I address by name. Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman. Um, Amanda, who I never mentioned her last name, but I mentioned who she's married to. I know and who if it you're, is. Now. Yes, yes. If you're a fan of the Dresden Dolls, you know who Amanda is. Um, there's a name, Trent, here. Um, that's, and, and it's Trent Lott, the senator. Yes, Trent Lott, the senator. <laughs> Big fan. No, it's actually, it is Trent Reznor. Aha. Uh -huh. And a discarded portion of the piece, um, the woman with the airplane tattoo who also works as a living statue, once... Amanda Palmer was on tour. The Dresden Dolls were opening up for Nine Inch Nails. And during their tour, Trent Reznor had a birthday. And so um, the woman with the airplane tattoo was given a birthday cake full of candles, and she stood somewhere in like the pits, the depths like beneath where the stage is, where all the green rooms and the corridors are, for maybe an hour and a half, 
until in a place strategically located enough that like Trent Reznor would walk by and just see this random woman standing there with a birthday cake, which is the most beautiful picture I yeah. feel like I've ever seen. And like I have a photo of that in my brain, even though I wasn't present for that. But I wouldn't want to – everyone in this piece is a real person. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't want to out the civilians. Right. And part of the piece is about how fame and being <clears throat> being adjacent to famous people instantly warps your story to being like the part that the famous person steps into is the most interesting part of that. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I wouldn't want their name published or any of the – I slipped up and mentioned one person by name who I wish I had not – you know, you should tell me. I can, I can bleep that. Um, there's another person who's not famous named Merlin, who I mentioned. Yeah, you and I did. Can't, I can't take his name out of it because it's just too, it's too good a name. funny that his name well, is Merlin. And what is the one sentence there on the page? Um, the sentence is, Little French Cafe, where everything was too expensive and you could still smoke inside. Which is... It's a place in Harvard Square that used to exist that two of the people who I refer to, three of the people who I refer to in this piece would have spent a lot of time. And just holding the memory of that place in my head colors the piece in, you know, your cliche Ernest Hemingway iceberg theory, all the details are underneath mm -hmm. type of a way. Yeah. Okay. That place is closed and I don't remember what it's called, so you can publish that. All right. Is that, is that the gist of it? That's the gist of it, yeah. Thanks. Thank you. you can find Ansel Appleton on a stage somewhere in Franklin or Hampshire County, Massachusetts. You can find all episodes of 15 Minutes at 15minutesjamiebergerge.com. Ed Patnode engineers the show. Christian Kandari made our little song. Thank you for listening. Get out the vote. This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger.